we've got another installment of Breakthrough Chronicles. And as I promised early on, you know, we are going to have a very diverse group of people that we talk to here on Breakthrough Chronicles. And this is a gentleman that I have watched from afar and up close and have been so fascinated by his work, who he is, and to have him now sitting to my left is an absolute thrill. Uh, you might recognize the face, face made for the camera. You see, he looks into that camera, you're like, oh, I know that face. <laughs> Mike Watkins. Mugshot. <laughs> Please turn to the left, sir. <laughs> How are you? Oh, it's so nice to see you. And I know that you've had a really heavy evening <laughs> flying in from Salt Lake City after that double overtime. So uh, thank you for this invitation. Well, it, it, it's an invitation that I have wanted to extend for a while. And, and creating this platform provides me a great excuse for, for us to get together. You know, it's funny. We have kind of walked in the same world for so many years, but we've never really had a chance to connect right. in, in person. We were talking to your, you know, some of your guys uh, and your crew here, young guys in the business. And yeah, I, it, it is a small community that people who sort of do what we do. And whether you're, you know them personally, you have certainly crossed paths at multiple times. Right. And it's the same thing, you know, my, we're such uh, Suns fans that we, you know, you and Eddie are in our living room every <laughs> night with us uh, Anne and the team. And we just think, you know, so uh, you, you develop a personal connection with people you see on television and then working in the industry, there is that, you know, cross paths frequently. So right. yeah, over the many years, how many times we've we been in the same room together, but uh, sort of moving in different directions. Moving in different directions. Back in the days when I was at, uh, is at KTAR, I'm sure you were probably across the studio talking with Preston or Pat or, or one of those guys, somebody one of those guys, about yeah. one of the, the numerous characters. stories. Uh, 40 years in the, the, the TV news industry, um, 20 years of that having spent here right. locally in the Phoenix market. And for some of you younger viewers, I would strongly suggest going to, to YouTube, doing the search for Mike Watkins. Now, we've got his book here. It is Story Hustler, Murder, Mayhem, PTSD. So see, just that alone, I know you're all racing to the search button right now because you want to know what that is all about. We're going to get more into the book a little bit later on. But, you know, the, the fact that you have covered such a vast array of American news history, it's really mind boggling. But I, I, I want to jump back and take me to nine year old Mike Watkins. The first time you looked into that camera, it was a local TV commercial local in Salt TV. Lake City. Right? Yeah, they needed a, a they needed a kid with braces <laughs> to smile on camera. Uh, the setting was a loan company, and parents sitting at the kitchen table struggling with bills. And suddenly, now they got to pay for their kids' braces. And at the, on cue, I sort of needed to sit there and smile. So that was my one big break. So it was a non-speaking part? Non-speaking part. Yeah, I, I'm hoping that I captured that moment, though, that <laughs> the essence of that moment non-verbally. But, uh, you know, it, uh, it has set me on the course of a rather checkered uh, performance and broadcast and acting career. Well, yeah. So we'll get into the acting side of it as well. For those of you who don't know, beyond the journalism and reporting uh, and, and multi-time award winner as well. 
but acting. So we're, we're going to jump into that. But so you, how, you're flatter. You flatter me to call some of that acting. <laughs> but you know, but thank you. So well, there are credits. That. So there is they were credits. Yes, they're IMDb. Yes, there it's there. <laughs> but how did you, as a nine year old, uh, make that decision? And I'm and I'm sure it's it partly parent based as well. Well, actually, it was my orthodontist. I think the, the production company said, we need a, a kid that we can put on camera and will be smart enough to smile on cue. And I, I guess I met that, that bare threshold of talent. <laughs> and uh, I think I probably owe my acting career, career to my orthodontist. Well, there you go. I, it, it, people start in this business in really weird ways. Long time over-deserved uh, or under-deserved yes. uh, credit hour, you want yes, to indeed. put that. But Father was an attorney. Yes, sir. You're the youngest of three. Yeah. All boys. Yeah. And I was sort of the afterthought screw up. Because <laughs> <laughs> your, your two older brothers went into law. They both followed my father into law. And he, he was quite, uh, for his generation, was a, a pretty distinguished, I think, distinguished lawyer. And both of them had been lawyers. But I realized that uh, that was probably not my path. Right. When did you... Realize because I feel like there's a uh, an influence from mom in there in terms of your your personality and makeup kind of combined with you know my yeah my mother was a lovely very giving just generous person and uh, yeah then they my parents were together for you know their whole lives and were wonderful uh, inspiration my you know I'm I'm a reporter in many ways my dad was a GI fighting. The Nazis and, and you know almost lost his life uh, in in war, and came back with a very profound sense of the importance of you know that standing up and and but he said if I could do it all over again I would have rather been one of Murrow's boys covering it and I think that had a real profound Murrow uh, has you know my sort of the idol for me throughout my life. And, uh, and my dad saying that, I think, really set me on a course. Is like, you know what, I want to be one of those trench coat wearing guys who's on the front line. And, uh, you know, have had some success at it, some failure at it. But I think that that was sort of my guiding, guiding light. And, and my mother was just such a, you know, wonderfully decent person. Right. And I don't share any of those attributes. And again, <laughs> they're aspirational. I think there are those that would disagree with uh, that. Well, but... You know, but yeah, I had great parents and wonderful parents. And, and and how ironic that your father would would use that name of Murrow, and years later, you would be bestowed with yeah. one of the greatest honors in journalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very. I like. You know, I'm very proud of the Murrow. I got two Murrows, and and both of them for the same sort of body of work at different times. But yeah, that's very meaningful. And I had a teacher at Columbia University when I was studying journalism. Uh, and he had been the film editor for Edward R. Murrow in the early days of CBS, where they were basically creating what is television. And he was a little chain-smoking old guy who cut <laughs> film for Murrow, and very knowledgeable man. And he told me one day, the most valuable piece of information or advice I've ever been given in television, and he says, he says you want to make good TV, kid? Always make sure the crew gets lunch. <laughs> And it has been the most valuable, honestly, take care of the people, especially doing what we're doing, running around and you're, you're broadcasting and you, you see it the same thing. The people who take care of you are your family. And, and this said to me, you know, the, ca the camera guys, 
you know, those are the guys I love. Those right. are the people I'm closest to. And, uh, and it's, uh, you know, I owe so much of my career to those guys who did the heavy lifting. Right. Saul, you remember that? You, did you hear that, Saul? Make sure the crew always, always has lunch. Make sure the boss <laughs> takes care of you. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, could you have imagined as a nine-year-old shooting that non-speaking part that all those years later you you would you go from looking into the camera to looking into the eyes of killers, Richard Ramirez, O.J. Simpson. I mean, as I said, you were a part of American news history in a period of time that was unfathomable. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, I've, I've always looked at reading, and it's the Lou Gehrig thing. I'm the luckiest guy in the world. Because uh, and and much of it was luck. I was at I was at precisely the wrong place at the very right time. You know, with OJ and then um, interacting with some of the serial killers like Richard Ramirez, getting you know hooked up with his girlfriends who got me in to interview the Night Stalker. And what I just feel like uh, serendipitously, I have been so fortunate to be at the right place. You know, and and it really is dumb luck in many ways. Take us back to those early days because it wasn't news reporting as as many people would see it. You were the L.A. bureau chief. For we were the t- a wildly we're, popular show. Yeah, we were television's bad boys for a while. <laughs> you know, when uh, Current Affair came on, I don't know if people even remember the show, The Flying Triangle. <laughs> uh, and Maury Povich. The sound effect, I'm sure they remember. Well, the, the, the word is, a little TV history, the word is they made that sound effect by taking an old-fashioned paper cutter and a golf swing and they put it through a synthesizer and they came up with the kachung, as we called it. The little piece of tri- uh, TV trivia for you. Only in Hollywood, yeah, all, all the sound yeah. effects, the way that you can And, and old day Holly, uh, I mean, <laughs> old day sound effects. But uh, yeah, there's a startup show, uh, Current Affair, uh, and it was Rupert Murdoch's Fox, their first effort at news when Murdoch was sort of buying up TV stations and creating what was then the fledgling Fox network. Right. And, uh, and this was their first venture into news, and it was this wildly tabloid show, A Current Affair. And uh, the, the, the mainstream media really was like, oh, my God, these guys, you're plugging our nose. And these guys are going to give us a bad name. And, and much of it was silly and right. nonsensical. And I, I did some of the, uh, the, the worst work I've ever done. But on the, you know, there was, it, it got better, and it allowed, I think, I did some of the best work I'd ever done there. So, uh, you know, it was a mixed bag, but we changed the face of American television. Because in watching O.J. and Tanya Harding, uh, Heidi Fleiss, the Hollywood madam, over the course of time, we were all in on these stories, and we watched the network say, you know what, we can't resist. Right. we got to get in. And by Tanya Harding in Portland, that's where I think the, 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 they gave up any pretense. They were all in on this quintessentially tabloid story. Doing, I'm doing live shots for Current Affair next to Connie Chung, who's doing it for CBS. And I thought, you know what? Uh, they may not like us, but they have accepted the sort of the reality of the audience. Was there ever a point early on, you know, because I'm sure you you felt like in many ways you were kind of riding that line and you're hearing from these, you know, well-respected <laughs> news people. People who I, I admired a great deal. Yeah. Listen, it was a, uh, you know, it is still sort of an unsettled chapter in my life. What you 
and uh, and I was some stuff I was really proud of, and some stuff was just you know is just really, you know, really no socially redeeming qualities. To Part it. of the job. Well, and you know, and you can I say that in retrospect as sort of a ma- old man that has, it does have some regrets. Sure. You know, as and won't lie about it, but uh, for the most part, you know, you have a, a quote on your sort of page of your uh, your email from Senator John Glenn that talks about, you know, if there is any real value in life, it is being involved in something greater than yourself. Right. And, and I think some of us come to that realization uh, hard-earned and as old <laughs> men. But so you can reflect and think, you know, the stuff, some of the stuff was very valuable that we did, and some of it was just, you know, uh, n- not so much. Right. Well, look, it, it, as we've all, uh, you know, encountered in our life, uh, there there will be mistakes made. It's it's acknowledging those and then learning from it and, and then being and, able to, you know, hopefully dispense that wisdom and information. So critical. And, and, and hopefully being surrounded by people who will let you make a mistake. You know, I go back and look at my early live shots. You know, very embarrassing. I don't know about you. You probably came out of the blocks as a great broadcaster. But <laughs> oh, no, I look friend. at myself, you know, early thing and I say, oh, my God, I can't believe they let that kid on television. But you live and you learn. And, and if, if they don't fire you. Hopefully, it get better. Right. You remember your first, like, I guess, news story? Uh, the very first one, well, I, st- I was in radio for a number of years, but the first tele- big television story was this, uh, uh, something that I remember very, just before Christmas, uh, there was a, a catastrophic mine disaster in a little town in Utah, and 48 miners were trapped. Uh, 28 miners were trapped inside this burning hole. And we went down to cover basically a coal miner's Christmas. And it'll still break me up. Because, you know, it, and, uh, all of them, they fought valiantly to get them out, but they lost every one of them. And mm. the devastation that you see in a community like that, it's interesting. Uh, my daughter and I went to a uh, hearing f- uh, about uh, a murder that happened 25 years ago, just, just this last week or something. That sort of bubbled up in the news again, and it's amazing how, how uh, for me, many of those stories are, are as fresh today as they were at the moment I was living them. Well, yeah, it has a profound impact on you. I, I recall back in when, when I was interning, uh, back when I was going to uh, to Pittsburgh State University, go Gorillas, round two of the playoffs. There we go. Got to give them the shout out. Yep. Um, but I was, as an intern, I was following news crews, and one of my first stories that I went on was a terrible automobile accident, and there were multiple fatalities, and I saw one, and in it impacted me in ways that I knew I didn't want any part of. Like, and you, you can see it in your mind right now. Y- yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, you know, when you when you look back at those days, when those big stories started to come up, uh, it, it almost feels like when I look back in thinking about your work, both that I saw here in Phoenix, it almost feels like through sheer osmosis, uh, I don't know how much time you spent in listening to your father talking, the you know, watching in trials or anything like that, but it, it feels like in many ways... You were a, you were representing your father, not necessarily as an attorney, but just through the way you communicated with people. Um, if I hope that's the case, I never really, you know, maybe, may I, I, 
I would, again, aspirational figures in my life, and I don't uh, profess to to have the same strengths, but, you know, there's definitely impacted by uh, uh, a mother and a father, and then, you know, uh, my family. You know, I I reference PTSD in this book, and, you know, I think that, and I'm reading a reporter friend's of mine's analysis of how it has affected other people who spend their lives focusing on this kind of story. And I'm very grateful that I had a really fairly normal family. You know, I got a wife and two children and tried to make it home. One of the reasons I got out of the tabloid business when we moved here was uh, I just didn't want to be on the road that much. And right. you know this, uh, it, that <clears throat> juggling that and having a family. If I would have stayed in L.A. and stayed in the sort of tabloid business, you know, I'd be an alcoholic. My kids would hate me. My, my wife would be divor- uh, divorced me a lot of times. And so, you know, I, I came here and was able to really have a family that I could go home and turn some of this off. You know, and that and, was very important. And, and talk about the role of your wife because uh, – She's got acting chops. No, she's a way better actor. Yeah, and she's been doing this forever. She was a beautiful model when I, you know, and still is beautiful uh, woman. And but she was a, a fairly successful model and actress. And, you know, whatever you do it in showbiz, and she was doing a lot of that and has continued to, you know, stay involved. She still performs. So I, I tell people our family we're not. The traditional family were really more of a circus troupe. <laughs> and if you don't perform, you're not really uh, upholding your responsibilities. And uh, I tell my kids that frequently. Yeah, two kids. Two kids. Yeah. Daughter Dylan's kind enough to join us here in the studio. We'll talk more about your projects that you've got going on. Uh, what was it, do you think, that allowed you to connect with? Those people, uh, the Ramirez's, the, uh, I mean, again, a whole litany of folks, the, the Heidi flight. What was it, do you think, that allowed you to connect with them the way that you did? Because it, it feels as though you were able to bring them into a portal or vice versa that few, if any others, could. Well, with a greater and lesser success, depending on the... I mean, I look back at the Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker interview, which is probably the most famous. So it's six million views on YouTube. Uh, and I look at that as one of my worst interviews ever. And I learned a great deal. Because I, I went in, and this is a danger. You get, you get too attached to a story. You get too involved in a story. And I went in angry. I was, I was not... You know, and Richard uh, had lost all objectivity. Well, he was—he's a real character, and you know, a a fascinating study. uh, Not to put the focus on him, but just—I had established that we were going to get this jailhouse interview through one of his many girlfriends who were outside this jail fighting with each other to get in to see him. Which that in of itself is still such a a mind blowing. Yeah, a circus. (laughs) But beyond that, we'd agreed to this interview. And I said, before I sit down with this guy, I want to talk to one of his victims. And we found a man who had been shot in the head uh, when, during a home invasion. His, his fiance brutally raped by this guy. And this guy was left, you know, badly disabled with a bullet in his head. And I was so moved by his strength that I sort of went in pissed off. Uh, you know, and I'd seen what Ramirez had behind the smug, Satan-worshipping, sort of charismatic... Uh, I guess in some circles, sexy figure. 
he'd really committed some just awful atrocities. And I, I'd met this guy, Bill Carnes, who said one of the last attack uh, that um, Ramirez committed. And going in, fired up by the, the suffering and what the, this victim had gone through, I wanted to throw down with Ramirez. So we're sitting in this little table and the big gangly, uh, you know, uh, night stalker uh, has, ba as soon as he sits down, he has this sort of manifesto. I could have asked him anything. And he had, he had it in bullet points. He was right. going to read me a sermon. So that sort of ticked me off too. So I look at that as showing that I was sort of out of control. I wanted to jump across the table and punch him in the face. Right. I'm not going to lie. And uh, he probably felt the same about me. And so it was combative. And, uh, and people, you know, it's interesting, I guess. And they, they have somebody took that script, just that raw interview, and made a mini movie of it with two actors, one playing me and one playing Ramirez. I mean, it has sort of taken on a life of its own. <laughs> But, uh, but, you know, again, I, I, it shows young reporters, don't leave your passions. I could have done a better interview with him if I'd not gone in angry. But it ended up being sort of a feisty affair. So I think it's, you know, it was entertaining. But I could have done a better job. Do you wonder uh, now in looking back at those, especially considering even the traction that they get today, yeah. like social media did not exist. Ooh, yeah. Thank goodness. When, when you, <laughs> some, of, some of those things are well, well forgotten. Yeah. yeah yes and no. And, the, and this becomes kind of the yin and yang of, of social media. There, there really is so much that can be good and positive. About oh, it. for sure. Uh, flip side, it can be very ugly Nefarious. and toxic yes. and, um, Danger, yeah, dangerous. But but do you do you ever think sometimes like where could this have gone and maybe who could I have reached and reached quicker had there been oh, yeah. you know a, a Twitter or an Instagram or a TikTok a Snapchat? I, I, am I leaving any out? <laughs> yeah, with you, consulting all the young people in the audience. <laughs> right. uh, yeah, uh, yeah, sure. Sure. I, you know, I remember most of my career was with a, a legal pad and a pen, you know, and then I remember the introduction of the big uh, a cell phone. These are just to communicate, not not to broadcast. Yeah. The, 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 the cell phone, the giant brick <laughs> driving down the Santa Monica freeway early one morning, uh, you know, and thank God we had this thing. We were headed to an early interview with a, for a current affairs hazy out racing towards Santa Monica. I get this frantic phone call. OJ's girlfriend or wife just got killed. Brick phone this big, you know, get off the freeway and get over to the, this Bundy address. And, you know, it was the start of the, and I just looked at technology even then. I remember that moment as this, I'm holding this thing up to my ear. It was like a cinder block and, uh, and you know, being dispatched for the first moment to go cover what, uh, you know, played out to be the trial of the century. Yeah, and, and as you get that call, you, your mind has to be almost going in, in two different directions. And then you hear the name O.J. Simpson well, that's, uh, that's, attached to this. And it's like. That's, uh, and and the, the initial call was funny because this was a great source uh, guy that worked in, uh, in our New York office. And, but he uh, and he didn't know who it was. I mean, he just said there's a guy and, and either it's O.J.'s girlfriend or his wife. Or, his details. Were, but he knew that it happened and he knew it was linked to O.J., and so, you know, we went piling off the freeway. And this, the, the, law, the point of that story is we were lucky, again, just lucky serendipitously. We were already headed in that direction and just had to pull off the freeway and pulled up at the crime scene. And, you know, and then the story started. You know, I remember Marsha Clark 
showing up at the crime scene and ducking under the crime tape. You know, when she first was obviously handed the case, this was within hours of, uh, you know, the bodies being discovered. It's just, I look back and just thinking, you know, it is history and it's really a part of Americana. Uh, and I'm just grateful that I had sort of a, a you know, a seat in the peanut gallery. Right. You shared an account in, in the book. And again, we'll hold this up for you and we'll, we'll, we'll share some more details. But you shared an account in the book, too, um, again, because you've had so many, I guess, chilling, the best way to describe it was some of the encounters you've had, but with, with O.J. and the eyes. Well, that it was the fall. It was, the, it was just hours after that. We, you know, uh, O.J., people who were uh, history buffs remember, you know, he had gotten on an airplane to Chicago in the middle of the night. And uh, the prosecutors would tell you he committed the murders and then got on that flight and went back to Chicago. So by the time the story is breaking, OJ is in Chicago and LAPD are letting him know, you need to come back and talk to us. So uh, we're in the first couple of hours, we're at the crime scene in front of Nicole's condo race over and suddenly OJ's Rockingham estate is suddenly, you know, the, the setting of the drama that is about to unfold and then we re- and then we got word that OJ's coming back voluntarily, so we raced down to Parker Center. This was a long day, and uh, and by the time we got there, a couple of crews suddenly started building up, and we got word that OJ was already inside talking to LAPD. And uh, we waited and we waited and we waited, and finally, his famous attorney Howard Weitzman, one very famous LA attorney, sort of breaks through the doors and says, OJ is going to come out, not going to say anything. And it was really sort of a diversion blocking back. Suddenly OJ's out the door and he's just headed for a car in the parking lot. And there's by now a gaggle of people like, you know, dogs like me around there. And uh, he walks out and OJ, what's any comment, anything. And my regret of that moment, as I write in the book, is that I think OJ had sort of the celebrity discount of him. None of us in those early moments wanted to believe the guy who ran through the airports and sold us, you know, the, the juice, the guy right. that we loved, was capable of this. And I don't believe any one of us old hard-nosed reporters threw the immediate hardball at, OJ, did you kill him? And, you know, I don't think there would have been a Perry Mason moment there or a confession, but it was so, it was so telling. OJ was terrified. He'd just come out. Suddenly he knew he was going to be charged. He was released at this point. Uh, prior to this slow speed chase. And he was a little boy who was in deep trouble, right. you know, a child. And it had that look in his face. And I wish that I, you know, one of us had thrown him the hardball just to see how OJ. But it, it really does speak to where as, as much as I think any of us uh, try in those situations to be objective, to be focused, to be professional. Oh, yeah. You, you can't help, as you say, kind of trace back to right. your your memories of this guy running through NFL defenses, run, running through the airport and commercials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, you know, in his, his acting career, it is. Yeah, I mean, O.J. was uh, as significant as significant a feature in sort of American culture of the time as you could get. So it was a, a horrible case. And, it, you know. Became uh, quite close to Fred Goldman over the years and became uh, friends with uh, Nicole's sister, uh, who continued advocacy for many years. And, you know, heartbreak. Uh, again, we were, we were at a trial for a, a murder 25 years ago and listening to what we heard in court just the other day here in Phoenix. It just, 
uh, an act like that never ends. And the rippling effects of the, out, the, the trauma inflicted on the loved ones, the, from the killer to the victims, I mean, it just, uh, an act of violence, something like that, just tears people apart for a long time. Yeah. Never really ends. Uh, right. It, it's this constant ripple that, you know, the, the, the pebble that almost gets thrown on a weekly, daily basis. It just will not stop. So after a current affair, uh, got canned from a current affair, got right. fired. <clears throat> the market changed. Yeah. Um, you find yourself here in Phoenix, right? And thinking, oh, you're going to be an investigative journalist. I mean, what's the worst story that I'll cover? <laughs> and boy, the AZ did, produced there. It did. Yeah, did this, has been a, this has been a yeah. It's been a great run and just a lot of different stories. And, when they, they uh, thank God, the guys that hired me at Channel 3, they were, you know, they were wonderful people, uh, Dennis and Phil. And they, uh, and they had created sort of this uh, environment that they wanted people to come in and sort of be yourself. My concern is by that time I'd had sort of such a, a nasty reputation. I'm thinking, that what these guys are going to come in and say, we loved you then, but we got to change you for us. Right. As they do frequently in the media. And, but these guys uh, let me run wild. And I, I owe them, you know, they just, no, I, I shouldn't say it that way. They really allowed me to go after stuff that I wanted to go after. And well, never, utilize your strengths rather and, than trying to, to harness what. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, that that's, takes some courage on a corporation's part to let sort of a wild man like me, you know, do my thing. Right. And, uh, and I, you know, and I respect <clears throat> very much. And they were, it's always been such a good relationship. Do you remember your first, and I'm, and I'm guessing the answer is an obvious yes, but uh, your, your first encounter with the toughest sheriff in America? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when I first came here, you know, uh, Arpaio, uh, Sheriff Arpaio was really at the sort of apex and ascending to his popularity. And early on, I think he sort of knew my past and he really wanted, you know, wanted me to be his friend. He went out of his way to sort of bring reporters that he wanted to tell his stories close to him. And, so suddenly as people are feeding me lots of stories and asking me to do all these kind of things and it got a little too familiar for my comfort and I sort of had to put a stop to that. Right. And I think I ended up being uh, there. We, I've, I've been recognized with a couple of awards and I'm grateful for those. But honestly, the things that I am most proud of at the end of the day is that uh, I ended up on Joe Arpaio's uh, uh, number one on his enemies list. And I ended up number one or on Warren Jeff's hit list. And, you know, I think you're defined by your, your, uh, your uh, friends and your enemies. And, uh, yeah, I, I think that Arpaio hated my guts. And uh, it uh, ended up uh, that kind of relationship. Right. You mentioned Warren Jeff. So that, that leads me to the next question. I mean, who, who would have known that spending your time here in the Valley as an investigative reporter the different stories that you covered that the biggest story and in many ways still continues to be the biggest story um, is in an area where you grew up not too far from. Right. Um, and your role in helping uncover something that is, was, is so insidious and, uh, impactful on so many lives. Just take us back to those early days when you first started hearing some of the, the rumors and the rumblings and how you were able to, in many ways, like a tug of war, 
through your dogged reporting and information helped launch this investigation that took down this incredible, uh, I mean, just a, an evil man. Yeah, uh, Mr. Jeffs. Yes. Uh, you know, people ask me why I got involved in this and uh, with some uh, frequency. And, and really, I, I was born sort of into this. I mean, I grew up in Utah. My wife and I were both raised in, in the Mormon church. And, and both of us have ancestors who were you know, polygamous. So it's, and, and as a child, I could have gotten on my bike from one of my, my family home and driven 10 minutes and shown you a cluster of homes that everybody in the neighborhood knew were as a practicing polygamous, right. polygamous family. You know, this is p sort of part of the, the, uh, the uh, secret hiding in plain sight throughout Utah. So it, to those of us who grew up there, this is nothing new, but uh, you know, I became aware that in the larger communities, in most of these communities, there is really a, a systematic abuse and control of women and girls, women and children, and in the larger groups to make them to sustain a, an industrial level kind of polygamy as they have in Short Creek with Warren Jet. Uh, you have to have real control over, complete control over the, the women and the children, and it's a bad situation as we. But I sort of grew up knowing this and, uh, and probably passed through Short Creek growing up in Salt Lake, you know, going down and vacationing in Southern Utah, passed through there multiple times when I was a child and always knew that, you know, there was more to it. And my, my question, my feeling is, and again, having the knowledge that I have, this may be unfair, but I, I'm surprised that other people weren't aware of it. I mean, I knew that Warren Jeffs was abusing children <clears throat> before I heard the audio tapes in the Texas trial of him raping a little girl and, and recording it. Right. Uh, you know, and, and it uh, shocks me that, you know, his followers, some of his most devout followers, some of his big bodyguards, well, we didn't know. I, I'm, I'm further removed than I knew. And, you know, and, and so it's, it's a little disingenuous, but it was, it, it, like I say, it has always been sort of hiding in plain sight. And the abuses of Mr. Jeffs, uh, he is an example of, uh, you know, uh, power corrupts and power, uh, absolute power. He became Teflon. They just, nobody would do anything. And, and with progressive leaders, it became worse and worse because Warren Jeff, you know, by his time, he knew that they were never going to come after me. And I've now built two towns where I have the municipal governments, you know, protecting me, right. the cops, the utilities. I mean, the, you know, it was the most well-established cult in America for a long time until they finally took control after a federal court ruling here. But, uh, you know, my, for me, it was sort of, it's obvious. Why aren't other people, when I started doing this, it's like, why aren't more people following? Why aren't more people picking up on this story? And I was, it took some time and it took the courageous, uh, you know, peak crusaders early on and what I refer to as the, the polygamist underground railroad. But, you know, I think we, I helped establish and these crusaders bringing young people out. We tell them, find them, tell their stories, confront the perps and then lay it in the cop's lap. And I right. thought we do a couple of these are going to active, get active. It just took a lot longer than I thought. Yeah. And that, that's the story when I, <clears throat> when I think about social media and, that could have helped. and, and the, the ability to accelerate yeah. that, to, to have that, that there on a, very on, a, on a daily, almost an, an hourly basis. Yeah, because we do one of these stories and then one of the networks would drop in every two years and do some sort of thing, you know, and it makes it sound like uh, it's just a moment in time. And to the extent my daughter and I have been working on this story, it's just given my history, it's like, 
I think my role is to connect the dots because these are not just isolated incidents in one ring. Right. This is part of a, you know sort of a, a long history of abuse that uh, you know will continue if it remains in the shadows. How did that? How did that impact you personally? I mean, again, you, you you'd seen and encountered so many different things. Talking about Richard Ramirez sitting in that jail cell, but when you were talking about women and, and children and and being a, a husband and a father, yeah. how did that impact you? And how did you try to, if you were able to, to kind of compartmentalize it? Uh, my daughter and I were having this discussion just the other day, and I don't know if I've done it. You know, I feel uh, in many ways at my age, I feel like I spend too much time, you know, uh, going back and delving into these stories in my own mind. And I don't know if that's a good thing, but it definitely had an impact. And, but, you know, uh, you, I don't think you can throw yourself into something unless you have some passion. And if you don't have some passion, you're probably not paying any price. Right. And, you know, so I don't have any regrets about this, but there's no doubt uh, I can I can see some of the first young ladies that, you know, we encountered who were running. And they're, they're terrified little faces in safe houses. And, uh, you know, and some of the crusaders who stepped up and risked, you know, I told stories and got paid for it. There were a handful of brave women who got out of there and risked everything uh, to try to help make sure that what happened to them did not happen to their little brothers and sisters. And they've, they've always been the hero. I, I, I really, when we talk about this, I feel like I have to premise the story always. That was, you know, people want to credit me for whatever I have done. And I only told stories about really brave people. And again, you know, it, Warren may have put a hit out on me, but I, you know, I've never lost an ounce of sleep over that. You know, that's not that's not any worry for me. These people, these women, primarily, got out and just said, "Hell no, we're going to put a stop to this," and they deserve all the credit. Yeah, and you'd said he, he not only put a hit on you, but in some ways, beyond putting a hit on you, what what I found in some of the excerpts and in, in reading from the the book and the magazine articles is that he and his circle tried to put a, a curse on you and to me that almost feels like more impactful internal how, how did you how did you wrestle with that or well i know these guys okay and they don't they don't i know these guys and it makes me laugh more than it makes me scared. To, to think that yeah so you know i these I, I watch with great interest when other reporters have sort of dropped into this story and they go talk about people chasing them around and people, guys in trucks, you know, spinning gravel at them and everything. That, that happened, has happened to me a handful of times. But most of the times when I went up there, I couldn't, it seemed like the town cleared out. I couldn't find people to talk to. Over the years, apparently, there was a very extensive network of surveillance cameras and security. And in a, deposi a deposition, in a lawsuit, one of the, uh, the town workers said that they had installed a security wall uh, because they wanted to keep Mike Watkiss out. <laughs> so I always look at that as my contribution to the infrastructure of Colorado <laughs> City. Mike Watkiss security. Yeah, as you go. And, and, and so uh, I honestly think they became very sophisticated about knowing who was in and out of, coming in and out of town. And uh, I think they uh, went after some reporters and they realized that it just wasn't going to work for me. <laughs> I couldn't find, go into the town offices begging for somebody to come confront me and usually couldn't find anybody. You talked about the, the, the role of your family, you, your wife, 
especially when you were in the thick of it, uh, having two young children, how did she help you on a, on a deal? Cause again, you're dealing with some very like dark, ugly stuff. What was, what was her role? How, how did you as a couple try to help navigate that? Cause I, I, I would imagine it a lot of nights you're coming home and freaked out. having seen a lot of dark stuff, heard a lot of dark stuff. Hope I didn't. <laughs> I, she's my, the, she's definitely my North star, my guiding light and has been certainly having her history and knowledge of sort of the Utah culture to a much greater, in, in many ways, much greater extent, the theology and understanding of that uh, has been, I wouldn't have done any of this stuff without her. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be alive without my wife and my family. There's no right. question about it. I'm sufficiently self-destructive. And the thing about it is she didn't tolerate the, you know, the best thing you can tolerate the not, you know, she went, let's, we get on, we got a life to, we, in, in the most loving way and we had kids. And I think that's healthy. To just come home, it's like you know what? Leave, leave the ego and the uh, the angst at the door. Right. We got a life to live. Just be dead. Yeah, be dead, you know, be and, and that's I think that's. Uh, I don't know if I compartmentalize it. Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll let the, the daughter Dylan over to here with the, a little rice well. smile. We might have to have her on next. Uh, well, let's let's talk about. We'll we'll, we'll kind of lighten up the mood here because th this is the one that I still absolutely love. Back to the uh, current affair days, and as we said, in acting. So, uh, longtime journalist, award-winning journalist, author, and actor. And who knew that it would be the gift that keeps on giving? And and if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, um, just if you've not seen it recently, um, go pull up Dumb and Dumber, because as you look at this face. Uh, changed a little bit. Changed just a little bit. <laughs> Hair a little bit longer. Um, no trench coat. <laughs> yeah, no trench. That was my Murrow days. <laughs> that was that was the Murrow look. But I'll share with you here from the line in Dumber Dumber, uh, from which he's received countless residual checks. We said the gift that keeps on giving. Next up on a current affair, the heartbreaking story of the little blind Rhode Island boy who was duped into buying. A dead parakeet. <laughs> and I tell my children, whatever I do in my life, that is the 30 seconds I will forever best be remembered for. <laughs> and uh, it was it was great fun. Uh, you know, How did that role come about? Uh, one of the PR agents at uh, Current Affair who did all the publicity for the show. I was in L.A. working as the bureau chief at the time. And she said, how would you like to be in a movie? And I said, what is it? And she says, well, it's with Jim Carrey and Jeff Daniels. Daniels, I knew. And Carrey, I shared an office with because, for months because he was working on the TV show A Living Color. And I used to stand oh. in, a, uh, in, a, in a, a coffee truck every morning waiting to get coffee with those guys. So I thought, okay, this sure. I, I didn't, as soon as she set up a movie, I said, sure, I'm in. Right. And, uh, and I'm glad I did. And uh, I was based in Salt Lake, but we actually shot the scene in Salt Lake. So I got to go home to my, and see my mom and go see a jazz game. <laughs> and then we shot that scene. Uh, and, uh, you know, it has become a comedy classic. Uh, yeah, yeah that, those, I, those few lines. It's not only the gift that keeps on giving. It's the movie that just keeps on giving. I mean, it is, it is one of those movies, I will say. That regardless of time of day, if you're flipping through, you're like, oh, okay, I'm in it. And, and, <laughs> yes, and, and, and you flip it through, and nine times out of ten, it's on. They, you, I mean, it's the kind of movie that must have gone out of uh, whatever. They can run it a lot because 
there are periods of time when I'll go in and I can, you know, it's on four to five times uh, in a week. Uh, but uh, thank God to the Farley brothers and to Jeff and Jim, I do still get residual checks for that <laughs> thing, 25 years after the fact. He continues to say thank you, thank you, and, and thank you. So beyond the, the nine-year-old uh, non-speaking part, yeah. was that the first then foray into? No, I no? had okay. done a film with Tommy Lee Jones. Uh, yeah, it was, it, it was a cool, it was a lousy film, but <laughs> one of the slow moments in Tommy's career. But a little TV movie, and I played a, a, this was when I was uh, reporting in Salt Lake City, and they needed a reporter. I'm, I'm looking that as I get older, I'm trying to branch out and uh, grow as an actor and not play a reporter anymore. That's In many ways, that's why I grew the hair and the mustache. They can't cast me as a reporter right. anymore. Right. But no, it was great fun, and uh, we shot on the steps of the Utah State Capitol, and Tommy Lee Jones is a rancher, and... Uh, there were a number of very famous actors in it, uh, including an old cowboy actor named Ben Johnson from the movie Shane. If yes, you remember that. And so it was a, it was sort of a, a, a hip Hollywood moment for me. The one time I was in camera with two Academy Award winners. So for me, it was a big moment. I, understandably so. Yeah. Uh, so you retired from the news industry in 2018. Um, but the acting bug is real. Like it, it, it is something that you really tried to throw yourself bug, into. Bug is too mild. It's an obsession. obsession. It, it's a okay. full blown. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think people who enjoy performance, uh, you know, it's a curse. That's what it is. It's not a, <laughs> not a bug. It's a curse. But uh, yeah, I, I still do it. I've done some films that have been really good, and some that some that have been abject train wrecks that I don't. I hope people never see. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I enjoy it very much. But it was funny. I was reading too, where you had you would said uh, that you know, even though you're since retired, you you were and probably will always be this rambunctious, hyperactive kid. Yeah, and that's part of what kind of fuels that, right? And that's why I love my family. They sort of put up with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm hyperactive. I'm ADD. I'm dyslexic. I'm <laughs> the whole gamut of things that could have gotten me in a lot of trouble. <laughs> and uh, thank God I found a profession that paid me to have adventure and a family that has not thrown me out yet. <laughs> well, let's talk more about the family and more about the, the most recent project that yeah. you are taking part in with your daughter, Dylan. And, oh, by the way, just, you know, grabbed an Emmy. But, you know, just another award for this multi-time Murrow Award winner. Uh, how... You know, the, the easy word is that like how special is that to get to share your passion? And clearly it's something that she has gravitated to for a while now. But to get to to be a part of that now on a on a daily basis in a word priceless. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, working with my daughter on some projects that I think are actually significant and we can make a contribution to. Uh, to work with her on that and to learn from her, you know, just have the energy uh, and out insight of uh, a world that, you know, have working on these issues, particularly, you know, on the, the uh, women and children issues, working on those with my daughter. Uh, you know, I, I can't put it into words. It's, it's, it's been great. It's, and coming out of I really wanted to have this behind me. I thought, you know, we were, confronted with some stories and I thought we we can still make a difference and to do it with her I couldn't pass that up right 
And, and, and if you can, just detail for the audience, like where they can find the show, the information. Yeah, well, we, uh, you know, when, we when they published, I got retired, tried to get that book out, and my daughter and I toyed with the idea, well, let's just talk about some of the serial killers, the old stories. And so we started doing a YouTube channel, Story Hustler, the YouTube channel. Uh, but it completely changed about two years ago when uh, this Netflix doc called Keep Sweet, Pray at a Bay dropped, which was a big deal. It certainly brought that issue back. And suddenly I got two phone calls from basically uh, 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 one woman who said, I need, she was somebody I'd known throughout this struggle, and she said, we need help. We got a, dis we got a missing child. And, you know, and I said, yeah, that was... Tug at the heartstrings. Well, it was the Al Pacino <laughs> moment. You know, right. it was just uh, pulling me back in. And, right. I, and I want, you know, if I can help, and, uh, and I think we have helped with that. And then, and then another guy who's sort of now in the headlines because he's a sort of a renegade prophet causing all kinds of problems and accused of all kinds of terrible abuses against children. For whatever reason, he sort of insisted on reaching out to me before he got busted. So we have this, this one guy, a guy named Sam Bateman, who's going to go on trial for horrible crimes. And for some reason, he needed to come sort of impress me. And so I got to know him before he broke in the headlines, and now he's accused of all kinds of things. And the second frame to that story is the bigger deal that, you know, Warren Jeffs and the FLDS community have sort of put out a need to gather up children because we're going to start doing the marriages again. And as soon as that the revelation came out in short order, children started disappearing. And that's the story that is really important. And that's what pulled us back in. And to do it with my daughter. Yeah. Like you amazing. Said, can't, can't put a price on it. What, what advice would you give and getting to work with your daughter who is in that, that demographic of young aspiring journalists who are struggling, I think, probably with a lot of what they see on mainstream yeah. news, uh, seeing uh, on social media platforms. We talk about the the yin and the yang, the good and the bad. But what advice would you share with those who really do want to do good news, good reporting, good journalism? Well, you know, I think I think that there are a couple of fundamental things. I mean, tell the truth. Always pursue the truth. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of those other old cliches that is so meaningful, you got to have fire in the belly. If you pursue the truth, have the fire in the belly. Unfortunately, I, I feel it's utterly inadequate to advise young people on how to navigate in this world because there is this proliferation, this vomiting forth of too much, you know, and there's no vetting on most of it. Right. Uh, you know, and, and how you, how you navigate that, I don't know, but I'm hope, hopefully if you're looking for reporters, try to find someone who, uh, you know, is, uh, is, seems, you know, hell bent on being straight and telling you the truth and seems to have some passion for pursuing and going after that story. You know, those are guidelines to viewers. And again, that's uh, so inadequate because it really is a confusing time with too, being bombarded with too much information. You know, the dynamics of so many of the national and international stories, you see the, the, the uh, use of disinformation, it's hard. Right. Okay, I, I'm, you know more about it than No I easy do. answer, really. Yeah, there, I, mean, I don't, not that I know of. Yeah. So you, you've dealt with all of these ugly, challenging stories throughout your career. Was 
the love and passion of sports, kind of being a sports junkie, was was that your release? Oh, I'd like, yeah, yeah. Well, there's I'm just you know I'm a little a little sawed off guy, but I have been an, a, a basketball a pro basketball fan. Growing up in Utah and watching the Utah Stars led by Zelmo Beatty <laughs> winning the ABA championship. Well, I got one of the, the uh, championship uh, seven games that went to with my to the Salt Palace with my dad. Right. So uh, you know, yeah, love those guys. And then you know, they brought the Jazz in and Maravich and the uh, and Adrian Dantley and you know Willie Wise and just uh, 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 Griffith, just great players. And so. Yeah, I'm a student of the game. My daughter and my son had both played. My daughter went and played, uh, you know, throughout college and then played a year in Europe. So uh, we are complete junkies. And that's why I say, you know, you and Eddie and Ann and the Toms, I mean, it's like, we really, it's just a part of the family. Well, it, it's always enjoyable hearing from you and and uh, and it, any of our viewers and, and listeners, you know, getting a chance where they, they say, you know, uh, I see you. I say hi to you all the time, but uh, I don't. I don't hear anything back. But I. But I, I know. You, I know you're there, and I know you. You, you feel it. I, I, I'm old enough now that and uh, was here long enough that I now have people, young people in their twenties, probably thirties now, and they'll come up to me and they say, "I grew up watching you." Nicest thing I can imagine. Right. I mean, really, the most flattering. First of all, they they, they let me into their home. Right. Over the, my parents watched you all the time. You know, doesn't happen all the time. Probably happens to you way more than it does to me. But those are the moments, and it's like, well, I couldn't ask for anything more. That they were they let me in not once, but a spicy guy like me, they let me in more than once. Right. Thank. I, I'm so grateful. You were described as a grizzled TV icon by the Arizona Republic a few years ago. <laughs> I've only gotten worse. <laughs> only gotten More worse. grizzled. Yeah. <laughs> well, one of the things that we love to do here on Breakthrough Chronicles is provide our guests an opportunity to share uh, their passions, their causes, their charities. We, we call it the pay it forward segment. So uh, with that, I'll turn the floor over to you if there is something that you support, that you would like to bring attention to, we'd love to help promote it. Well, yeah, I would just say there's always ongoing issues. And with this trial that I mentioned, my daughter and I were in, you know, domestic violence is always an issue. Uh, and there's a number of good organizations here. Uh, we're talking about a case uh, where a mom lost her daughter and was also shot in a domestic violence. Set up a, a, a place called Cassie's House. I'm not sure it's still... But, you know, these, these are the times of year when, uh, we, you know, we, we want to tell ourselves that we're thinking about people who are in need, but there's just a lot of them. So domestic violence and, uh, and you know, the abuse of, of women and, and children uh, globally. Uh, watching on something on CNN last night about what's going on in uh, the Sudan, you know. Right. There's just, there's just a, a lot of suffering in the world. And, and as an old man, and this is another sort of inside of being a grizzled old man, you know. You really do become grateful for what you have, yeah, and how uh, nice and uh, feel sometimes feel you know some degree of guilt about that. And I think there is an obligation to involve yourself in something greater than yourselves, right? As your quotes. <laughs> Before we get out of here, uh, next film stuff, next acting give. What do you what, what are you working on right now? What should be looking out for? Uh, you know, I'm waiting for my uh, my role. I'm waiting for my Casablanca. I'm waiting. I would like to make one great film. Uh, Dumb and Dumber certainly was a, a blockbuster, made a lot of money, and people know it. But and a couple of I, whatever. I'm an actor. I will. You know, actors want to act. 
Right. And, uh, and this strike has certainly put a damper on it. But Arizona is apparently saying they're going to get back in the film industry. There's more money coming in. I've heard that for a long time. I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah. But so, you know, it's all hopeful. And, uh, and right now, uh, my daughter and I are really involved in the, uh, the YouTube channel, Story Hustler, uh, and uh, hoping, and we're going to, we're working on some longer, the one documentary I did was 19 years ago, Colorado City and the Underground Railroad. And, uh, and that represented about 20 years of work then, and 20 years have passed. So we think maybe we're going to put together maybe time an update for a uh, of, the, of the Underground Railroad, uh, Colorado City and the Underground Railroad. All right. Check out the YouTube channel. Go pick up the book. Not for everybody. <laughs> Mature audiences. <laughs> Mature audiences only. Story Hustler, Murder, Mayhem, PTSD. I mean, Terrific thank, to see you, thank my you friend. so thank much. It's what an absolute pleasure and an nice honor to have you sitting here. And daughter Dylan. My bodyguard. <laughs> right. He's yeah. an executive he, he said he's bringing to the bodyguard. I'm like, hey, you can bring in whoever you need to. So <laughs> Security. <laughs> Great to see you. Likewise. Mike Watkins, a pleasure spending time with him on Breakthrough Chronicles.